Now you know when a solar physicist from NASA comes out and says the mini ice age is going to hit in four years and the return of the grand solar minimum is going to affect European and Eastern U.S. winters, we should actually take notice of this. Now indicative of the cold, which always throws off the planting and harvesting times, there's a 96.7 statistical probability that there'll be increased volcanism and earthquakes. And there is definitely a link between global volcanic activity and solar activity lows. And you might ask yourself, if we had such drastic effects from El Chichon in 1982 and Mount Pinatubo in 92, which lowered global surface temperatures over half a degree overnight from an eruption, what's going to happen when we're going into a grand solar minimum and we get an eruption like this? Pierce Corbin from Weather Action Now also talking about the huge changes of solar activity and earthquakes due to the reduction of magnetic fields, which also has the effect of allowing in more cosmic rays. And Heinrich Svensmark, the cloud mystery, explain how cosmic rays form more clouds, which create more precipitation. Keep in mind, whenever a grand solar minimum comes, there's a global extent to it from England to Japan to the Russian Empire to the Saharan Desert, which we just saw snow in North and South America and New Zealand summer snow. It's a global event and it's a harbinger of lost food production. Little Ice Age Brian Fagan also details how Europe was so greatly affected in the civil wars and the famines and the disease and the plagues. This all comes as a package. And if you think you're going to run to South America and be safe, guess again. Little Ice Age recorded. Kelkea Ice Cap. Worldwide event. These are the temperature anomalies associated with South America when we get into the Grand Solar Minimum. A bit wider out here for you, but you can see the drastic fluctuations. Not only precipitation, but temperature. And then another paper... Cooling of the southern high latitudes in the medieval period focuses on this area at the very tip of South America along the Chilean coast. What they found was the collapse of empires across South America related to these weather events as well. So if it's going to go into a mega drought again, and these cities in Chile and Peru are already having a very difficult time with water, What's going to happen while the water actually turns off from nature there? They're going to have to abandon the cities. We're going to find those same cities in four or 500 years again. And this report just details the rise and the fall of ancient Peruvian cultures with these climate change events. Sea surface temperatures also dropped during this time. They found different photoplankton. Fish migrations are affected. And then when we get up into the Caribbean and around northern Venezuela, also you see precipitation amounts vary greatly during these times of grand solar minimum influence. If you think southern Africa is going to be safe and you can run down there, looking at heavier summer rainfall, but drier conditions, drought even all the way up into Zimbabwe, we're starting to see that same pattern, although that's a La Nina effect. Is it grand solar minimum? Or is it La Nina with the drought in Southern Africa now? Soon to find out. Sea ice extent increasing. Contrary to what the news had to believe that it was a fallout event into the lowest ice ever right now. Clearly not. DMI chart for you. Link below. We've been told Antarctica's melting. It's not. Temperature's dropping. So why would they lie about that? Mean central UK temperatures from 1772. If it was really going to be to this all-out warming, how's that dropping into the 2015-16 year? UK mean temperatures between winter and summer. If we're going to be getting into this runaway warming, why is it definitely within the statistical average and even trending toward the cooler side of everything? And then we get record snow cover. The second highest value in 50 years. The only time before that was 1976. And these records go back into the 1890s. 
We're pushing 100 year plus snow records in the northern hemisphere. Nice glimpse here. December 2015 compared to December 2016. Press the pause button. Take a look around the chart and where you see the differences. Also, these massive snowstorms just rolling over the Sierra Nevadas. Looking at 20 feet in this storm. Just 10 feet over the last two days. Squaw Valley. Ski Patrol sent this one in on Twitter. Four and a half feet in the morning. And it dumped another three feet since that image was taken. Insane rain amounts across the deserts of Australia. Five times more rain than the 116-year record. Plus, just last week, all-time record rain in Alice Springs, which matches up with the Grand Solar Minimum temperature reconstruction. All the while, the IPCC still running with their ridiculous warming models. Observations are actually in the green squares and blue balloon data sets. And the news releases across the planet will have you believe that we have warmed 1.5 C since the satellite era, but it's actually only 0.3. That 1.5 extends back to 1840 coming forward, but now that's not even anywhere close to 1.5. It's down to 1.2 or so and decreasing, which it will with La Nina and the Grand Solar Minimum taking us back under zero again. We got six major sources of temperature data, and for such a precise science, I don't see how they are not matching. We were told last year, within a hundredth of a degree, we broke the Earth's hottest temperature, yet they can't even match up the temperatures through six different data sets here with six different satellite feeds from universities and research institutions. 2016 indistinguishably warmer from 1998 which means equivalent and John Casey was calling out that we were going to start crashing in temperatures at the end of the year and we are right on the mark he's calling that we're going under 25 sunspots for this next cycle which takes us into the grand solar minimum and when you look at ocean temperatures versus land temperatures how can you get such a steep off the cliff drop off on land Climate Change Institute showing downtrend for 2016. We see the butterfly sunspot average matching back up into the 1880s. This is going to decrease further back into the 1700s in this next solar cycle. And I will bring it to you again. Every grand solar minimum, the Chinese dynasties collapsed, as well as the Anchor Empire. The Burmese-Thai wars were fought during those same times over land and resources. And then we come in here and severe frost is going to damage Ukraine's winter. We're looking at decreased land temperatures. Argentina repeating the same grand solar minimum pattern with exceptional rains and floods during that time. Being repeated. Farmland at risk of flooding. That happened the exact same thing last year. And I encourage you to dig in and do some of your own researching because we are all in this together. There is nowhere to run. This is a global event and it has started and it's going to occur years faster than anticipated. I was putting it out the cold at 2023, 2024. And this new report comes out and says it's going to get here at 2020, 2021. That gives us three less years to prepare. And the IPCC preventing people from putting out information suppression of different feeds across social media not ah, it's just sickening the amount of deception going on to keep this information from you it's meant to depopulate this planet it's the only possible reason you can take that for what you think it's worth but of the amount of research and thousands of hours and hundreds of videos i've done that's the only conclusion i can really come to right now and if you go to iceagenow.info and look just in the last four days, there are so many anomalies that are so unexplainable. I can't even keep up with it. And it's nearly impossible to even try to synthesize that information and make something out of it. Smash cold records, tens of thousands deep. Smash snow records, thousands deep. Snowing in the middle of summer in New Zealand. Record cold in France. 
and snowing in Athens and just record snows across Greece and record cold in Italy and, and snow across the Sahara Desert and snows down in Saudi Arabia and just record cold across all of Eurasia. It's insane right now what's going on. It's actually intensifying far faster than I ever anticipated. And you know what? We're all going to need to find a solution for this together. In 1570, construction was going strong on sod houses in Nunachlik, a village in what's now southwest Alaska. There were two rivers close by, perfect for salmon fishing. Near the village, seals and caribou were abundant. And while this all sounds great, things weren't quite the same as they'd been in the past. It was colder than usual, there weren't as many salmon in the rivers, and the glaciers seemed to be expanding. The village, it turns out, was actually living through a period known as the Little Ice Age. Usually, Ice Age refers to glacial interglacial cycles, or times when there are major ice sheets and times when there aren't, that last for thousands of years. But this Ice Age lasted only a few hundred years, which is why it's little. During this period, ocean temperatures were just a few degrees colder, and that small change was enough to plunge most of Europe into cold so extreme that Dutch canals froze solid, something that rarely happens now. But Nunaklik seems to have thrived during this period, based on the evidence a team of researchers has found in the remains of hundreds of animals who lived and died near there. So how did this village manage to survive and prosper during the Little Ice Age? And what caused this period of climate change in the first place? We don't have all the answers yet, but the ones we do have come from some unlikely places. Caribou teeth, dead beetles, and maybe even the sun itself. The term Little Ice Age was first used in the 1930s to refer to a different 4,000-year-long period, but the definition has changed over time. Today, climate scientists and geologists use Little Ice Age to mean a few hundred years of climate change in recent history, but exactly which few hundred years they mean varies. It's still an ongoing debate. So for this episode, we'll call it 1400 to 1850. Now, in the grand scheme of deep time, the Little Ice Age was basically just a blink, but for life in the Northern Hemisphere, it was a game changer. It's particularly interesting to climate scientists because it happened so fast. And while the Little Ice Age has mostly been studied in Europe, researchers are now starting to look at its effects in other places. Which brings us back to Nunaklik, that village in Alaska. From oral history passed down by community elders, people living nearby have known about the site for a long time, but they left it alone to preserve it. Things changed though when the permafrost started to melt, exposing two sod houses and thousands of artifacts to the elements. Since 2009, researchers have been working with the Quinnahawk Village Corporation to excavate the site and to catalog, stabilize, and store more than 100,000 artifacts as they emerge from the permafrost. These objects are currently housed in a museum in Quinnahawk, the community closest to the site. It's the largest museum collection of pre-contact Yupik artifacts in the world. Based on radiocarbon dating, it looks like the site was primarily occupied from 1570 to 1675, entirely during the Little Ice Age, making it incredibly valuable for understanding how people there survived the colder climate. And one way to study this is through their trash. Refuse piles near the sod houses contain animal bones, antlers, and teeth that are a treasure trove of environmental and archaeological data. From these piles, we know that the residents of Nunalklik ate a combination of different types of wild game, including fish and marine mammals, as well as land animals and birds. And in 2020, more data emerged to help quantify the impact of the Little Ice Age on the village. The research team used the remains of beetles from the site to help find that temperatures were at least 1.2 degrees Celsius colder than the modern average. Which might sound like a small change, but it's actually more extreme than other parts of the Northern Hemisphere. On average, summers were between 0.5 and 1 degrees Celsius colder during the Little Ice Age compared to the 20th century. 
And between the archaeological data and the climate data, it looks like Nunaklik was doing just fine during one of the coldest parts of the Little Ice Age. But the landscape around it was changing throughout that period. From tree rings, ice cores, and other chemical records, it's clear that there was a climate shift in Alaska and Canada that spanned the Little Ice Age. And this brings us back to the caribou found at the village's refuse piles. Throughout the site's history, caribou were an extremely important resource. While the people there didn't actually eat much of their meat, they did hunt a lot of caribou for their antlers and skins used to make tools and clothing. And from teeth found in the refuse piles, the research team was able to study four caribou and reconstruct their lives using isotopes. These showed that the caribou used different breeding and calving grounds than the herds that live in the region today. Something made the caribou shift their ranges between the Little Ice Age and today. And whether that was human adaptation to the climate or the changes to the environment caused by the changing climate itself, we're still not sure. What it does tell us though is that this region of Alaska is part of the bigger global story of changes caused by the Little Ice Age. Decades of research have shown that the Arctic cooled more than some temperate regions, but there were still impacts around the world. Geoscientists have studied all kinds of natural archives, from isotopes and bones in western Argentina to flood deposits in Greece that recorded change during the Little Ice Age. Now, that doesn't mean that the world's climate cooled everywhere. There's still a lot of debate about how exactly the Little Ice Age affected different parts of the world. But it does look like it was a time of increased climate variability, one that seems to have had many different causes. One hypothesis with solid evidence is that several solar minima were partially responsible. These are times when there's just less solar activity, meaning that the sun doesn't send as much light to Earth. These are a part of the normal solar cycles that happen to this day, but it wasn't enough to cause the Little Ice Age by itself. Another potential cause was changing land use in the Northern Hemisphere. Computer models and climate simulations suggest that as humans disturb natural land cover, like forests, the new bare surface was more reflective. Scientists call that reflectivity albedo. High albedo means that the surface reflects a lot of sunlight away from the Earth, and low albedo means that heat and light are absorbed. The snow-covered ground without trees increased albedo during the Little Ice Age, making it colder, especially in the winter. So far, estimates suggest that the impact of changes in land use was about the same as the impact of the solar minimum. And those weren't the only potential contributors to the cold. There were also volcanoes. Increased volcanic activity can lead to cooling because it puts more particles in the atmosphere, shading the surface of the Earth from the sun's energy. One study noted 16 different eruptions linked to cooling events between 1630 and 1850 based on particle data from ice cores. And two of the eruptions, one in Japan and one in the Philippines, happened toward the end of the time Nunaklik was occupied. These eruptions plus reduced solar radiation might have also caused a major change in an important ocean-atmosphere interaction called the North Atlantic Oscillation. See, there's a delicate balance between sea surface temperatures and wind, and when that balance is thrown off, it can have wide-ranging effects. And it can be thrown off by things like volcanic eruptions triggering colder summers. Man, to be honest, the Little Ice Age sounds like a really tough time. You had volcanic eruptions, changing wind and temperatures, and even a weaker sun? Despite these changes, there's no indication that food was scarce at Nunaklik, even though there were famines and struggles in Europe during the same period. So why the difference? Well, one reason is probably that the people of coastal Alaska had a diverse diet, eating a mixture of marine and land animals. Life in the Arctic was often relatively extreme and unpredictable, so they were just more used to change. If Nunaklik had relied on just one source of food or on agriculture, they would have been in trouble, but instead they were able to adapt to the shifting environment. In fact, the end of the occupation of Nunaklik doesn't seem to have been directly caused by an environmental disaster. Instead, it looks like the settlement was attacked or involved in a war that occurred roughly between 1645 and 1675. However, some researchers have suggested that the negative effects of the changing climate may have triggered this conflict. 
Eventually, the sod houses sank into their surroundings and the artifacts they held were trapped underground, perfectly preserved. Though centuries have passed, Nunalchlik lives on as a valuable cultural and environmental archive as new data and artifacts emerge. Those artifacts help draw connections between life in the village and the modern community. Caribou hunting and salmon fishing remain an important part of life in Southwest Alaska today. And perhaps there are lessons we can all learn from this village about resilience in the face of extreme climate change. Imagine a world covered in ice. Estimates vary, but some scientists think at the poles it could have reached negative 130 degrees Celsius. And there was no escaping the cold even at the equator, where temperatures would have dipped below zero degrees. Sheets of ice coat both land and sea, and beneath them, the world is quiet and relatively still. It may sound like some far off planet, but that's what our own planet once looked like. And actually, it happened twice during a pair of episodes of intense glaciation between 716 and 635 million years ago. These global freezes occurred within the period of geologic time known as the Cryogenian, or time of ice. But most people refer to this chapter in our history simply as Snowball Earth. So how did this happen? How did the world become covered in ice? And most importantly for us, why did the planet eventually thaw again? Strangely enough, for both of these questions, the answer lies in volcanoes. The evidence for Snowball Earth is written on every continent today. Since the early 1900s, scientists have been finding clues all over the world in the form of drop stones. These are rocks and pebbles that were picked up by glaciers as they moved across the land. And once the glaciers met the sea, icebergs broke off and floated away, carrying the rocks with them. When the ice melted, the stones dropped into the ocean. These drop stones show up in ancient marine formations all over our planet. And while the continents have shifted since the Cryogenian, scientists have been able to reconstruct the original positions of those ocean sediments using magnetic particles preserved in the formations themselves. These particles record the direction of the North Pole, which tells us where on the planet the drop stones originally fell into the sediment. And when you reconstruct where these drop stones were deposited, you can see that they stretched from the poles to the tropics, which means ice did too. Now we know that this extensive glaciation actually happened twice, between 716 and 635 million years ago. The first episode started 716 million years ago and lasted for about 36 million years. And the second lasted from about 650 to about 635 million years ago. Now, there have been glaciers on our planet before. In fact, we still have some now. But what makes these two periods so interesting is the extent of that ice. After all, today the tropics are pretty warm, a balmy 31 degrees Celsius in the afternoon, which is awfully warm if you're trying to freeze over an ocean. So how did our lovely temperate world get cold enough to freeze? Well, at first scientists thought if there's evidence of ice having been at the equator, then maybe the equator wasn't actually at the equator. Maybe Earth had been tipped over on its side at some point, which would have made the equator part of the poles. That's how weird it was to find evidence of ice in the tropics. Scientists thought that it was more likely that Earth fell over than the equatorial oceans had frozen. But now we know that the evidence is too widespread for a change in Earth's tilt to explain it. In fact, the evidence is so complete that it's likely that almost all of the Earth froze over, including both the equator and the poles. Because in addition to drop stones, more evidence has been found in the form of carbonate rock. This rock is created when other rocks on the continents weather and break down to form ions, which eventually makes their way into the water. When those ions attach to dissolved CO2, they join together to form carbonate. And studies of ocean sediments all over the world have found that during parts of the Cryogenian, these carbonate rocks disappear. Because when the world was covered in ice, almost no weathering took place on land, so carbonates became really rare. But when the ice started to melt, weathering resumed, and huge deposits of carbonates begin to form again. Most geologists think that the absence and reappearance of these rocks is a sign that Earth was mostly to completely covered in ice. But while that makes sense to the geologists, it doesn't make sense to some biologists. Life had existed on Earth for over a billion years by the time the Cryogenian started. 
and organisms like photosynthetic cyanobacteria and even animal life like sponges had evolved before the ice sheets grew. Which raises the question of how early life could have survived under the ice. Some scientists have suggested that there must have been a fair amount of open, unfrozen water at the equator for life to persist. This model is called slushball earth, but it doesn't line up with all of the geological evidence. So yet another hypothesis is that there was ice everywhere, but that it was thin enough in places for light to shine through and to allow photosynthetic life to survive. Studies of modern cyanobacteria in Antarctica suggest that life may have even thrived on top of the ice sheets themselves. But whether it was thick ice or thin ice, the ice was abundant. So then why did these massive glaciations actually happen in the first place? Well, the most popular theory is that our planet's thermostat just failed. That thermostat is the carbon cycle, the swapping back and forth of carbon between the atmosphere and the Earth's crust. And it starts with volcanoes, which over the course of thousands to millions of years gradually emit CO2 into the atmosphere, where it helps keep the world warm. But CO2 levels are kept in check because that gas gets stored in carbonate rocks from the process of weathering. So volcanic emissions and rock weathering are the two counterbalances that keep Earth not too hot and not too cold. But in the Cryogenian, an early supercontinent known as Rodinia messed with the thermostat by breaking up. Breaking up is hard to do, and rocks usually do it pretty violently. But the breakup of Rodinia was especially intense because it pumped out a lot of a volcanic rock known as basalt. And basalt is really, really good at soaking up CO2 in the process of weathering. Plus, Rodinia was sitting at the equator at the time, where it was warmer and wetter, which weathered the rock even faster. So scientists think that this could have thrown off the carbon cycle, soaking up CO2 faster than volcanoes could release it. And there was another contributing factor, the sun. During the cryogenian, the sun was actually about 7% dimmer than it is today. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it was enough that once the levels of CO2 dropped, it was so cold that glaciers started to grow. And in the last few years, scientists have discovered yet another driving force behind this phenomenon, a truly massive and spectacular eruption that took place 18 million years before the glaciation even started. Today, the remains of that eruption are known as the Franklin Large Igneous Province, more than a thousand square kilometers of basalt lava that cover the Canadian Arctic. But what sets these rocks apart from others is that they were full of another planet cooling gas, sulfur. When you pump sulfur into the air, it cools the earth, but normally it doesn't do it for very long. Sulfur dioxide interacts with the water in the atmosphere and forms acid rain, typically leaving the atmosphere within a couple of years. But these eruptions weren't made by your standard volcanoes. Instead, they sprayed out huge jets of lava called fire fountains, which could have erupted for years, spraying plumes of sulfur gases up to 12 kilometers into the atmosphere. And that high above Earth's surface, near the stratosphere, sulfur dioxide would take a lot longer to break down and to rain out. So low CO2 levels let things cool down, and a dimmer sun didn't help. Then suddenly, 716 million years ago, vast amounts of sulfur dioxide may have been the final blow to Earth's thermostat, and ice began to form. The second glaciation may have had similar causes, but it isn't as well dated or understood as the first. But for both episodes, the real problem came when the ice started to grow. Ice reflects more light than water does, which makes the world cooler, which makes more ice grow, which makes the world even cooler, and so on and so forth. This feedback loop is called a runaway ice house effect. And scientists who have modeled this process found that once our planet had ice below about 30 degrees latitude, the latitude of modern day New Orleans, the growing ice was basically unstoppable. So why are we not still stuck on a world that's basically hoth? Because of our old friend carbon dioxide. Rodinia didn't stop splitting apart just because it was covered with ice. As it kept breaking apart, volcanoes kept forming and releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. But this time, because the planet's rocks were mostly locked beneath ice sheets, they weren't able to absorb all that greenhouse gas. So instead, it began to build up in the air. It took almost 50 million years for enough CO2 to melt the first round of glaciers, and about 10 to 15 million years to melt the second. 
Between the two glaciations, Rodinia continued to break up near the equator, which is why the thermostat broke twice during the Cryogenian. But by the end of the Cryogenian, Rodinia was largely in the southern hemisphere and it had stopped splitting so dramatically, so the thermostat could reset itself. Once most of the ice had melted by about 635 million years ago, the warmer oceans suddenly began to fill with animal life. The period that immediately followed the Cryogenian, known as the Ediacaran period, is full of some strange and varied forms, descendants of the survivors of the snowball earth. But animal life itself didn't actually first evolve in the Ediacaran. Molecular clock analyses suggest the most recent common ancestor of all animal life lived long before that, some 800 million years ago, which means that somehow animal life actually lived through the snowball earth. How? Well, the earliest animals were practically unkillable, and it turns out they not only survived Snowball Earth, they helped change the oceans for the better. If we're operating off a 10,000 year time scale, then the last ice age ended 14,000 years ago, with a sort of weird unexplained fluctuation of the Younger Dryas 13,000 years ago, possibly caused by a comet strike that dragged it out longer. This means that if we're operating off a normal time scale here of the interglacial period of 10,000 years, the next ice age should have started 4,000 years ago or in 2000 BC. So what was the world like in 2000 BC? Agriculture had spread across practically all of Eurasia and much of the Americas, but was rare in most of sub-Saharan Africa, non-existent in Oceania. There were four centers of urban civilization in the world. There was ancient Egypt, where the pyramids were shockingly already 1,000 years old, and the only other state you'd recognize in the Middle East being Babylon. The largest center of civilization in the world was the Harappa of modern Pakistan, and there were a few cities in the coast of Peru with the Norte Chico civilization. Eurasia was in the Bronze Age, with chariot warfare coming in and about to make a decisive splash. There were developed rural cultures basically as advanced as the urban ones mentioned before. Stonehenge, built by the developed megalith building culture, which we know basically nothing about, was already a thousand years old. China was a group of tribal warlords who were scrambling towards literacy and state status, something they achieved within the next 300 years, and the world was in the early stages of the massive Indo-European invasions that would wreck a massive region stretching from the British Isles to India. When we look at the possible effects of the ice returning, the main thing to consider is that this would take thousands of years. In fact, it would be a process that would still be occurring as of 2021 or whatever year you're watching this. The ending of our last ice age went from 12,000 BC to 6,000 BC in rough terms, although there were two dramatic climate drops, one a bit before 6,000 BC and the other around 11,000 BC, that lengthened the process by at least 1,000 years. This means that the process of the world freezing would take something in the range of 5,000 years. This brings us to one of the core issues of this timeline. Human history happens in the timescale of decades, centuries, and rarely millennia. For the Sun and Earth, millennia are like half of milliseconds to us. Isolating single natural events will rarely pan out as expected. Imagine predicting an alternate history based off the seasons of your year, operating off the average temperatures. That wouldn't factor in that extra hot July and extra cold October that just happened randomly. Now imagine predicting how the bugs and birds are affected by these seasonal shifts. That's about what predicting this alternate history is like. All of these things I talk about here should operate with standard errors of thousands of years, but that's not really manageable for human history. For a brief example of how much small climactic changes can affect history, think about the mini ice age. This was when the world saw colder temperatures between 1300 and 1800 in our world. A relatively minor drop in temperatures helped precipitate the Black Death, French Revolution, Irish Potato Famine, European Diaspora, Crisis of the 17th Century, Manchu Conquest of China, and more. Imagine this process on a significantly larger scale. One of the coolest elements of this alternate history is that, like some video game, is that the ice gradually gets worse over recorded history. At the time of the birth of Christ, the glaciers might have just made it onto the Scandinavian mainland, and in 2021, they might be in modern Poland. This adds a very interesting time pressure. I'm just saying, guys, this would make a great mod for a paradox game. The northern regions would be the ones first affected by freezing weather. The peoples furthest north in this era, like the Siberian reindeer herders, pre-Indo-European inhabitants of Northern Europe and the Inuit, were completely irrelevant and have no records, and so that gives us a certain time buffer. The next peoples to be affected would be the horse tribes of the Eurasian steppe, like the Indo-Europeans and Turks. 
The cooling of Russia and already cold area had pushed these tribes out. In our timeline, the Indo-Europeans had massive and very pronounced migrations, with huge demographic and genetic effects. For God's sake, the guys committed genocide across Northern Europe, meaning that modern British people only share about 10% of their ancestry with the builders of Stonehenge, just 5,000 years ago. Similarly, they came to make up around half of India's genome. With their homeland under increasing amounts of pressure, these migrations would be more pronounced. Perhaps there'd be more massacres in Southern Europe and the Middle East, where most people are descended from Anatolian farmers who came with the invention of agriculture. Southern Europe would be more like our timeline's Northern Europe in this timeline, with Italians more like Germans, French more like the English, and Turks more like Ukrainians. Similar trends could be seen in India, where the population would be lighter-skinned as more Indo-Europeans would massacre the native population. Perhaps areas like Pakistan would be genetically much more similar to modern-day Iran. Nomadic peoples tend to deal with climactic disturbances by becoming more aggressive. This is since they can move their entire society with them and the males are already effectively warriors. Meanwhile, farming peoples tend to collapse into civil war and internal dissension as the farmers get desperate and the ruling elites compete for resources. This would create disturbances in the developed urban societies as the barbarians would be getting more desperate and states weaker. We would likely see the early Chinese state, possibly the Shang at this point, collapse into internal chaos as the Turkic nomads from Mongolia had become more desperate. The Turks would take over China before the Chinese would become numerous enough to assimilate them well, resulting in a hybrid culture between Turkic and Chinese elements developing in China. This would have the most profound effect on Chinese civilization. China is profoundly a farmer civilization, more so than any of the other main Eurasian civilizations, all of which are also heavily founded by herders. This makes a lot of the elements of Chinese civilization clear. Herders are always very militaristic for a variety of reasons, and China's isolationism and pacifism may make more sense with this herder element being weaker. Similarly, Confucianism, China's main ideology, makes sense in farming societies where there are large systems of dependency, rather than the Abrahamic religions which were developed by the Jews, a nomadic herding people. Similarly, China's lack of a hereditary nobility may come from having no militaristic herder group ever installing themselves as one in time immemorial. China in this timeline would be much like the other Eurasian civilizations in ours, aggressive, monotheistic, and aristocratic. A major issue we run into in this timeline is that predicting events to an exact degree, and by that I mean on the scale of the size of continents in over hundreds of years, becomes practically impossible. We see this with climate change in our current world, in which we really don't know what the effects of global warming will be even 50 years out, let alone the long-term geopolitical significance of them, because the climate itself is such a complicated beast. For example, during our mini-ice age, the Middle East experienced crippling droughts that killed millions in the Ottoman Empire. Meanwhile, in the actual ice age, the region had phases in which it was much wetter than now and much drier. This is talking about ice ages like they're unified things, rather they're complex periods lasting between 70 to 100,000 years with a good deal of variation inside them. What we do know is that the important centers of civilization would experience crippling droughts and other climactic effects at one point or another that would break them and the barbarians would always be waiting to swoop in. Something that people often forget is that civilization in its early stages was quite weak and unstable. A couple bad years of the Nile's flooding caused a dark age in Egypt, and both Egypt and Mesopotamia were very vulnerable to foreign conquest. They were always able to assimilate these barbarians, but with some very bad droughts, would these civilizations just fall apart? One must consider how the Nazca, Karal, Olmec, Minoan, Maya, Mississippian, Pueblo, Harappan, Hittite, and Mycenaean civilizations effectively collapsed for mostly internal reasons, leaving only rubble and ruins remaining. Civilization was a fragile thing in its early days, mostly since stuff like city walls, writing, and big palace monuments only benefited a small elite, while the peasantries were mostly indifferent or hostile to the central government. This is why the rise in iron resulted in the rise of barbarism around 1000 BC, since iron negated the advantage of the chariot kings, and once they were gone, there wasn't really a self-interest to keep civilization around. My guess is that the main civilizations would have several hundred year periods where they would just completely lose urbanization. However, there's no way humans would abandon metalworking or farming, and so new civilizations would keep appearing again and again in different parts of the map. This is effectively what occurred in the pre-Columbian New World, where you saw civilizations continually rise to great heights, and then when the climate got worse would collapse to only reform a thousand or so years later. Much of civilization in this timeline would be like fireflies, flickering beautifully in the dark before becoming extinguished and vanishing again, only to re-emerge somewhere else. 
The long-term trajectories of civilization would be changed in several key ways that it's necessary to talk about. Firstly, religion would be enormously different. People would realize that the world was getting colder and resources were shrinking in the long term. If this was a process that would occur for thousands of years, it would just be seen as the norm. Every religious structure on the world would adapt to this. They would inevitably take a very pessimistic view of the world's cosmology. Perhaps there was a war between the good and evil gods and the good gods were losing, but if humans did the right thing, the good gods could eventually win. Perhaps the gods were punishing humans for some sin they had committed in the deep past that they were damned to eternally cool their temperatures for? I don't know. Similarly, ethical systems would be a lot more fluid and brutal. This is a world with a scary amount of genocide and ethnic conflict. This would mean that the notion of a united human identity would probably be a lot weaker. Religions in this world would not say, we all have souls, or the light of God is in all of us. Instead, identity would be based around your tribe and everyone else would be some shade of subhuman, that it would be okay to kill if the survival of the tribe demanded it. We have to remember that people in this world would have grown accustomed to the world continually getting colder in the longer run, so they would have figured out cultural institutions to maximize their own success in that world. We'd effectively see Darwinian selection of the societies that were best adapted to the changing climate and the growing ice. Technological progress is a more mixed bag. Some technologies, namely this stuff like military technology, metalworking, etc., would thrive from the extra competition, which this world would have plenty of. You have to remember, in the ancient world, barbarians did as much inventing as the civilized nations. However, other technologies require large civilizations and the narrow networks of expertise that developed with them. In general, more technologies fit into the latter category, and so with urban civilization taking a brutal hit, technology would be less advanced. The gradual lowering of sea level would have some very interesting effects. Over time, it would mean the formation of new islands, and islands in the modern world would gradually over time become parts of the mainland. Japan, Sicily, and Britain are prime examples of this. The banks of Newfoundland would become a massive island chain, which would make transatlantic travel significantly easier. Similarly, the Atlantic would gradually become a massive ice wall, which would make navigation easier as ancient mariners could just hug the iceberg. Perhaps this would allow some pseudo-Viking-like people to cross the Atlantic earlier and with more ease. Also, remember the Pacific would be easier to cross with a landmass connecting Asia to North America. Once civilizations got past a certain threshold of size, they became much more stable. This was since they became large enough that even if one kingdom collapsed, there were enough eggs on different baskets so that the whole civilization could survive. It seems probable that at least one main civilization would reach this threshold and then be able to continually adapt to the growing ice. If I had to place a bet on anyone, it would be China. China is naturally geographically isolated, and as the ice would get worse, the Mongolian steppe in Japan would become more and more inhabitable, thus removing their main competitors. Similarly, China is the main civilization that can continually conquer and expand south without facing either the Indian Ocean or the Sahara Desert, meaning China could continually conquer its way into Southeast Asia. In this world, a more militarized Chinese civilization would control the entirety of Southeast Asia, possibly even expanding into Australia. In Europe, civilization would gradually be squeezed into Italy, Spain, and the Balkans, who would end up having climates similar to Northern Europe. These areas would face permanent invasions from further north in Europe, which would continually be getting colder. This would result in these areas becoming distillations of all of Europe, as Celts, Germans, Slavs, etc. would all get squeezed together into these areas. These societies would remain unstable by all this conflict, but they'd also be selecting for the best fighters, who would be the only ones who could survive. This would open up this area for empire building after a certain point. The New World would actually benefit enormously from this timeline in several ways. This would mainly be since as sea levels would be lower, the Bering Strait between Siberia and Alaska would open up before Canada would be completely closed off with glaciers. This would allow the reintroduction of animals like the horse and cow into the New World. Domesticated animals gave the Old World a decisive advantage over the New in meat, muscle, and disease categories, and so on paper with them the New World civilizations would be just as developed as the Old. A variable to consider is that civilization in the Old World was held back for 5,000 years after the invention of agriculture, as humans had to gain immunities from the diseases they got from domesticated animals. Although the New World already had civilization in 2000 BC, and so I don't think it would permanently go away, this is a factor to still consider that would retard the New World's civilizations behind the Old. In most Ice Ages, the American Southwest was wetter, which would make areas like Texas and New Mexico ideal for civilization. However, these areas would also be facing the southward movement of the Great Plains horse tribes without any real geographic barriers, and so that would probably crush them.
In general, this timeline gets pretty hard to predict past a certain range since A, the point of departure is so long ago that the facts are already pretty bad and the era we're talking about covers thousands of years, and B, the effects of climate change in this scale are impossible to predict. This is why I've generally kept away from the Middle East, since I don't know if it would be drier or wetter. If I had to guess what the world would look like, it would probably be something like this. Although I'm a thousand miles south of the Arctic Circle, this cave stays cold all year round. The rock and soil beneath the surface are permanently frozen all through the summer. I'm here with geologist Jeremy Shacken and mountain guide Dave Stark. Getting a little tight, huh? I'm crawling already. The ground inside this cave has been frozen since the last ice age. This is 10,000 years of permafrost. You can feel it getting cold fast. Yeah. To preserve this unique cave, it's closed to the public. Even scientists restrict their visits to once every few years. Now, this is really cool back in here now. It's opening up. Whoa, look at this chamber. Now we're in an auditorium with a ginormous rockfall. Wow. 15 minutes in, and there's a spectacular change. Oh, my god, look at this. I'm crawling, hands and knees. OK. And, uh, watch your heads all going first. Cold knees. It's like a gigantic igloo. <laughs> How deep is the ice you're crawling on? I don't know, but you can see way down. Oh, my god. That's Holy yeah. moly. <laughs> you got to see these. Super weird. Like, <laughs> that's crazy, though. I mean, this is like, uh, it's like being inside rock candy. This is unbelievable. This is one of the most amazing places I've ever been on this planet. The ground's so cold here, any moisture in the air freezes to the cave walls, forming enormous crystals of ice. They're, but they're big. They're like five inches across. Your hand, right? I've never seen ice crystals like this. No. And there's some that are like big dinner plates. I feel like I'm in a crystal chandelier factory. Stuff looks like glass, not ice. Holy cow. This place is so totally amazing. I can hardly believe it. And actually, it's pretty crazy as some of these are dripping just a little bit. It's very clear that just our bodies in here, if we stay much longer, are going to change the temperature of this place. And we're looking at kind of a remnant of an ice world. It's, yep. it's amazing. This is uh, an ice world that's changed into a non-ice world. Let's, uh, let's duck and go. Stay low. This crystal cavern is a reminder that we are still living in an ice house world. But it looks fragile, on the cusp of change. This is treacherous going in here, man. Slick rock. Slick, jagged, loose rock. If we go deeper into the cave system, we can see what happened when it warmed in the past. So the farther back in the cave, the further back we go in time. Yep. Wow. Oh, wow, that is totally peeling away from the ceiling. Oh, like, right over your head. Right like this ice at our feet. Seems like it came from up there. Wow, that is crazy. In here, we find the flip side of the ice chandeliers, evidence from a warmer interglacial world, the last time this crystal cave melted. See, that's the kind of stuff that would be so cool to date. This is the stuff that gives us a glimpse into a past warmer world when this whole cave was thawed out and there wasn't any ice. It's not forming now because it's cold in here and we don't have running water. But if we were in some warm time in the past when this cave was thawed, so the water comes down from the surface above, dissolves some of that rock, you'd have sheets of water running down this and it has little minerals dissolved in it. And when they run down the surface, they deposit those crystals. And layer by layer, they build this thing up. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, it's awesome. So let me show you this. If you check this out here. Here's a flowstone that's actually from this cave. It looks like toffee. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. So layers of primal colored stuff in it, right? Absolutely. And so the way this one worked is oldest right here. Yeah. And then with time, it kept adding more and more and more layers to it. I get you. So it would have been something, you know, growing like that out of the wall. I get you. And just layer upon layer gets added. And what are you measuring? So basically, we're measuring when there's water flowing, right? It okay. tells us when this thing is growing. Like this one, for instance, yeah. from this cave. We dated it, it's 400,000 years old. 400,000. 400,000. How much warmer was it 400,000 years ago? How much heating did it take to thaw out this permafrost? What's the danger line? And interestingly, 400,000 years ago, the world was warmer, but just like a couple degrees. It's sort of like the where we expect to be middle, later part of the century. If history repeats itself, the permafrost in this cave could be on the brink of melting again. What's wild about it is it contains a ton of frozen carbon. Um, and it's, it's a ton. It's twice as much carbon as already in the atmosphere. But where is that carbon coming from? It's just old dead stuff. Just old plants, animals that at one point were alive. They have carbon in them. They die. It goes down into that soil. So, so right now it's frozen. It's turned off. It's not going anywhere until you dial up the temperature a little bit. Open the freezer door. Starts to melt. And all that meat will just start rotting, burping out methane and warming things up even more. How much global warming can you do before these caves, this Arctic permafrost, thaws out? Right. And it was dripping when we walked in here. Yeah, which I think means we're tipping back. Come back in 50 years or something, and these things are going to be regrowing again. OK, yikes. Yeah. Yeah, that's serious. Yeah. If the permafrost thaws in here, and across all the frozen land at the polar extremes, a massive release of methane and CO2 will speed up global warming all over the planet, creating an unprecedented threat to humanity. Scientists may finally have an answer to what caused the Little Ice Age of the 17th century. A new study claims that roughly 50% of a global cooling effect during that era was caused by the loss of 90% of 60 million indigenous lives during European colonization of the Americas. Most sources point towards a number of 6 million people, um, like indigenous people, living in the Americas. So from 60.5 to 6 million people, that's how we then see arrived at the 90% depopulation. According to the study, Christopher Columbus kicked off European colonization when he landed in 1492. 55 million indigenous people across the Americas died over the next century through events like genocide and disease. That removed millions of carbon producers from the equation and left an estimated 56 million hectares of land vacant. This population practiced a substantial amount of agriculture. That obviously then had a, um, an impact on, uh, on land management. So um, there was not enough workforce available to actually uh, manage these fields anymore, which means forest returns or natural vegetation returns. Nature then reclaimed that land, and the massive jump in plant life and photosynthesis absorbed 7.4 petagrams, or 7 billion metric tons, of carbon from the atmosphere and converted that to oxygen and sugar. Those factors resulted in a cooling of the atmosphere. Winters in the Little Ice Age averaged 2 degrees colder than the modern era. We can't really even talk about apologies or moving forward until we see that full accountability. And boy, someone's got to account for this. Dr. Pamela Pometer is a well-known activist and faculty member at Toronto's Ryerson University. She told Global News that population figures supported by science have a high value, and Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission should take note. This report substantiates what, you know, the chair of the TRC said, that it wasn't just cultural genocide that Canada committed here. It was also physical and biological. This kind of, you know, scientific hard data shows just how extensive the genocide was, and that means something different for truth and reconciliation. There's never been a real accountability for what happened. We just say, you know, we had these good policies and oops, they went wrong. Instead of actually saying, this many people died. This is what we did. These are the people that we sterilized. These are the people that we scalped. These are the people that we murdered. And here's the impact to the earth, to the people, and to us. What does it mean for us as a society? Genghis Khan was one of the worst ruler the world has ever seen. If there will be any way to travel back in time and erase him from the existence to save the innumerable people he has killed, no one would hesitate. 
His empire lasted a century and a half and eventually covered nearly a quarter of the earth's surface. His Mongol armies were responsible for the massacre of as many as 40 million people. And Genghis Khan will always be hated for that. But nature doesn't hate him for what he had done. Instead, nature considers him as the greatest eco-warrior of all time. According to a study by the Carnegie Institution's Department of Global Energy, Genghis Khan's Mongol invasion in the 13th and 14th centuries was so vast that it may have been the first instance in history of a single culture causing man-made climate change. The Mongol invasion cooled the planet, effectively scrubbing around 700 million tons of carbon from the atmosphere, which is roughly the quantity of carbon dioxide generated in a year through global petrol consumption. And this happened because he killed over 40 million people and depopulated a large area of land, meaning that countless number of agricultural fields eventually returned to forest. In other words, one effect of Genghis Khan's invasion was widespread reforestation. And the regrowth of those forests meant that more carbon could be absorbed from the atmosphere. So maybe our planet has already witnessed a real version of Thanos. The average temperature on Earth has always fluctuated. Millions of years ago, for example, it was on average 8 degrees warmer on Earth. There were also ice ages thousands of years ago, and the average temperature on Earth was 2 degrees lower. How did these temperature differences arise? First, the sun plays a role. When the sun is more active, sunspots can be seen. This can make it a little warmer on Earth, but this only involves a tenth of a degree of heating. The current global warming can therefore not be explained by a change in the activity of the Sun. Volcanoes also play an important role. During a violent eruption, a lot of ash is released into the atmosphere. This ash, if it enters the atmosphere high enough, can remain in the atmosphere for a long time and block the sunlight. For example, the eruption in 1815 of the Indonesian volcano Tambora caused the global temperature to drop sharply and 1816 was called the year without summer. Although in the short term the volcanoes cause a temperature decrease, volcanoes cause a temperature increase in the long term. Volcanoes emit the greenhouse gas CO2 which causes the temperature to rise. The earth was once a planet full of ice, but due to a lot of volcanic activity, a lot of CO2 was emitted and the temperature on earth slowly increased. Milankovic variables are a final natural influence. Milankovic thought that the temperature on earth was influenced by three variables related to the position of the earth relative to the sun. In short, the point is that if the northern hemisphere receives less energy from the sun in the summer, the ice on the north pole will not melt and an ice age may arise. First, the sun does not orbit the sun in a circle, but in an ellipse shape, in which the sun is not centered. This is called eccentricity. The point where the earth is closest to the sun is annually, at the beginning of January. So, in July, the earth is farthest from the sun. This is summer in the northern hemisphere. Because of the distance, the earth receives less energy from the sun, the ice in the northern hemisphere melts less quickly. This could be the beginning of an ice age. If there is a circular shape, the Earth is closer to the Sun at the beginning of July. This gives the Northern Hemisphere more energy and the ice melts. This prevents the formation of an ice age. The eccentricity changes approximately every 100,000 years. The second is obliquity. This is the tilt of the Earth's axis relative to the Sun. The Earth's axis has a tilt of 23.5 degrees, but this changes between 22 and 24.5 degrees. The wider the angle, the more the northern hemisphere turns towards the sun in summer, and the more ice melts. The smaller the angle, the less ice melts in summer, and the greater the chance of an ice age. The obliquity changes approximately every 41,000 years. The third is precession. This is a tall movement around the Earth's axis that changes every 26,000 years. Here the first two effects are amplified or limited depending on the eccentricity and obliquity. The Sun develops spots that are about the size of Earth and they change in intensity and number over time. According to NASA, these sunspots provide a standard gauge of solar activity. That activity rises and falls in 11-year cycles. 
The next one begins this year, and the current solar activity forecast calls for the weakest in the last 200 years. Astrophysicist Dr. Jeff Zwierink of Reasons to Believe spoke with CBN News about the correlation between sunspots and weather on Earth. If it continues to drop, uh, you know, one thing we do know is that sunspots, uh, you know, they look at like dark spots on the sun. So you'd initially think, oh, maybe uh, that's because there's less radiation given off. It turns out because of the magnet magnetic fields going on in there, uh, the sunspots actually emit more radiation. And so if there are fewer sunspots, we're receiving less sunlight from the sun. And so you would expect to see a continual decline in temperatures that things might get colder over the next 10 or 15 years. According to the New American, more and more scientists believe this lower solar cycle could spark a lengthy period of minimum solar activity, leading to cooler temperatures on Earth. It's happened before. From the mid-1600s to the early 1700s, the sun experienced a period of low solar activity known as the Maunder Minimum. It corresponded to a time on Earth known as the Little Ice Age. We know from uh, historic records, um, and, and these are very early observations of, of the sun, that there were very few of these sunspots uh, for a very long period, from about 1650 until 1715. And, and this particular period of low solar activity also correlates with a, a period where the climate, in, at least in, in most of Europe and in other places of the world, was very cold. So what they noticed is, uh, you know, primarily in uh, Europe, where they were taking a lot of these measurements, what they found is that the temperatures were really cold. It was also very cold in North America. Colonial art often shows deep snows and ice-filled rivers during the winters. Zwering says the bottom line is if the sunspot activity continues to drop off, we're going to experience cooler weather for a while. Mark Martin, CBN News. Well, we are going to have memories of this October with the summer-like temperatures that we experienced for the second month of fall. Steve is live along the lakefront with a look at how the warm fall could actually impact our winter. Yeah, Shanna, what we may not have noticed on all those gorgeous October days we had and even on nice November days like we had today is the temperature of Lake Michigan. It stayed warmer than ever later in the season than ever before. And it's another sign that our Great Lake is changing. Lake Michigan has a lot of moods. On the day we sat down to talk with Sarah Marquardt from the National Weather Service, our Great Lake was angry. But we wanted to talk with Sarah about how this lake is getting hot under the collar. That was quite the headline we saw that Lake Michigan is the warmest it's ever been, the latest it's ever been in the season. Well, that's pretty unusual that it's, it's that warm. And that's due to just how mild temperatures have been across the entire Lake Michigan Basin since the end of September. What's she talking about? Well, for the first three weeks of October, every day's average air temperature was warmer than average. So at a time when Lake Michigan should have been cooling down, all that heat had it warming up to a record level. As of October 24th, the lake surface was 61 degrees, seven degrees warmer than normal. Yet another data point that the lake is changing. Back in April, we told you how the deepest parts of Lake Michigan are the warmest they have been in 30 years. And the annual turnover of the lake's depths from warm to cold is happening later. What is the direction of our lake now that we're seeing all these different data points come in saying things have changed? With a changing climate, we are seeing more extremes. We're seeing cold spells, we're seeing warm spells, and we're also seeing more climate variability where we're seeing one extreme than the other. These are signs that winter in Milwaukee may not look like what we are used to. A warmer lake means less ice. The extremes of that, more lake effect snow or less snow overall. With warmer Lake Michigan water temperature, areas near the lakeshore could stay warmer later. And those areas could also see the first snow delay this year. Make no mistake, there will still be a winter in Wisconsin. Days like this are a sure sign the seasons are changing. Changing to what? We're just not as certain. 
I have to think wind events like this do wonders for just turning over the temperature strata of the lake. Yeah, that, that does play a role. And eventually that's going to flip over as the air temperature cools the warm waters at the surface. In Tuvalu, we are living the realities of climate change, sea level rise, as you stand watching me today at COP26. We cannot wait for speeches when the sea is rising around us all the time. Climate mobility must come to the forefront. We must take bold, alternative action today to secure tomorrow. Tuvalu Climate change and sea level rise are deadly and existential threats to Tuvalu and low-lying atoll countries. We are sinking, but so is everyone else. And no matter if we feel the impacts today, like in Tuvalu, or in a hundred years, we will all still feel the dire effects of this global crisis one day. In Tuvalu, our islands are sacred to us. They contain the mana of our people. They were the home of our ancestors. They are the home of our people today and we want them to remain the home of our people into the future. This is why this call to you from Tuvalu is not just a political statement. It is a call that reverberates from our eight islands